All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 33 for December 2021. Smile for the Birdie, Philadelphia Photography Pioneers, Robert Cornelius, Frederick Gudekunst, Matthew Carey Lee, and Coleman Sellers II. <laughs> Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and volunteer podcaster. Photography in its infancy made its way to Philadelphia in 1839, literally weeks after Louis Daguerre invented the technique that carries his name. Lampmaker Robert Cornelius was interested and took what is now recognized as the first selfie. Frederick Gudekunst opened a studio where people flocked to have their picture taken. Some of his shots are still considered the definitive representations of the subject. Matthew Carey Lay was a bit of a recluse after an early laboratory accident, but he helped photography make giant strides forward through his knowledge of photochemistry and then invented an entirely new branch of chemistry, almost through serendipity. And Coleman Sellers II was a nationally renowned mechanical engineer for whom photography was a hobby, yet he managed to produce what is now acknowledged as the first motion picture. All four of these men are interred at either Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia or West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Balakinwood. I will tell their stories in this month's edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Smile for the birdie. The first camera was made during the late Renaissance. Light which enters a tiny hole in the wall of a darkened room forms an inverted image of whatever lies outside on the opposite wall. The principle had been known since the 4th or 5th century BCE. Greek mathematicians Aristotle and Euclid both described something very similar to a camera obscura. This camera obscura method, literally dark room, is still used today as a way of safely viewing a solar eclipse. In the 1560s, an Italian scientist showed that by substituting a lens for the pinhole, the inverted image could now be seen upright. Many artists traced the images that were produced and used them as a basis for paintings. A later innovation was the camera lucida, designed in 1807. A piece of drawing paper was laid on a flat surface, and a glass prism was suspended by a brass rod over the paper at eye level. 
If you look through the peephole centered over the edge of the prism, you would see at the same time both the subject and the drawing paper. And then you could guide your pencil by the virtual image you were seeing. This portable device could easily be carried from place to place and freed the amateur from, quote, the triple misery of perspective, proportion, and form. Photography is merely a way of fixing this image by the action of light upon a substance sensitive to it. The ancients had observed that chlorophyll of vegetation turns green when it's exposed to light, and many fabric colors fade. Natural philosophers and alchemists found that certain salts of silver, especially the halides, are radically altered when exposed to light. They turn quite dark. As a reminder, a salt is a chemical combination of a positively charged cation and a negatively charged anion, which results in a compound with no net electric charge. Sodium chloride, or table salt, is perhaps the best known example. A halide ion is a halogen ion bearing a negative charge. The word halogen means salt producing. The halide anions are fluoride, chloride, bromide, iodide, and astatide. People were inspired to find a practical use for this phenomenon, especially when the rising middle class of the late 18th century started to seek ways to duplicate someone's likeness without the labor and expense of sitting for a formal painted portrait and then disagreeing with the artist about whether it was a true likeness. And the extremely talented silhouette cutters of the day could only create so many subtleties in their work. So the next step was obvious, to make light itself fix the image from the camera without having to draw it by hand. The first person to try this was Thomas Wedgwood, son of the famous British potter Josiah Wedgwood. The Wedgwoods were members of a legendary group of 18th century thinkers and inventors in and around Manchester known as the Lunar Society, which met monthly during the full moon as the extra light would make their journey home safer and easier in those pre-streetlight days. Other members during Josiah's time included chemist and philosopher Joseph Priestley, who spent the last 10 years of his life in Pennsylvania, physician William Withering, who discovered the medicinal power of the foxglove-derived digitalis, steam engine pioneer James Watt, physician and scientist Erasmus Darwin, and many, many others. The Lunar Society was in its waning days by the time Thomas joined, but they still called themselves and each other the lunatics. Sometime in the 1790s, Wedgwood had learned of the light sensitivity of silver salts, and he began experiments by sensitizing paper or leather with silver nitrate, and then placing flat objects or paper transparencies in contact and exposing the whole to light for many hours. The results were excellent. But Wedgwood was disappointed because his son Prince were not permanent. He found no way to desensitize the unexposed areas of the prepared surfaces. He had to keep his samples in a dark room and would show them only occasionally by the light of a candle. Otherwise, they would just all turn black. The next step was taken by the Nipsey brothers in France. They used paper sensitized with silver chloride and an artificial eye, a box about six by six inches with a tube that could be lengthened and a lens. 
In this way, they invented the first negative image. Nisiphor Nipsi then found that a certain form of asphalt, bitumen of Judea, was light-sensitive and normally soluble in oil of lavender. But when allowed to harden on a plate, it became insoluble. He was able to make direct positives on metal and wash the plates in a solvent to stop the chemical reaction. This new method of producing an image was called heliography, or sun writing. In 1827, Nisiphor Nipsey visited Paris and met with the theater painter Louis-Jacques Mandé Daguerre, who specialized in scenic design for the opera and popular theaters. Daguerre had been using the camera obscura technique for special theatrical effects and was thus familiar with its workings. The new information from Nipsey led him to his photographic investigations. By 1837, Daguerre polished a silver plate until it was mirror-bright and chemically clean. He sensitized it by putting its silver side down over a box containing particles of iodine, where its fumes reacted with the silver to form light-sensitive silver iodide on the surface. He then exposed it in a camera. The light reduced the silver oxide to silver in proportion to its sensitivity, but there was no image yet. He at once placed the exposed plate over a box containing heated mercury, and its fumes formed an amalgam with the freshly reduced silver. Now an image became visible. He then bathed the plate with a strong solution of sodium chloride, which made the unexposed silver iodide relatively insensitive to further light action. Finally, he washed the plate in water and let it dry. In this way, he made a highly successful still-life photograph of plaster casts, a wicker-covered bottle, and framed drawing and drapery. It was six and a half by eight and a half inches, and he called it a daguerreotype. In January 1839, the newspaper Gazette de France wrote, We announce an important discovery of our famous painter of diorama, M. Daguerre. This discovery partakes of the prodigious. It upsets all scientific theories of light and optics, and it will revolutionize the art of drawing. M. Daguerre has found the way to fix the images within a camera obscura, so that these images are no longer transient reflections of objects, but they're fixed in everlasting impress, which, like a painting or engraving, can be taken away from the presence of the objects. Daguerre did not reveal his methods to anyone until 19 August 1839 at a joint meeting of the Academy of Sciences and the Academy of Fine Arts in the Palace of the Institute. Crowds had to be turned away before Daguerre spoke. Now, the first daguerreotypes were mainly of architecture, since the exposure times of Daguerre's technique, up to 20 minutes, were so long that people could not be recorded. This daguerreotype method seemed excessively complicated and quite expensive. A camera and processing equipment cost 400 francs, which was the better part of a month's salary for Frenchmen in the 1830s. But soon smaller, less expensive cameras did start to appear, and people started to carry the daguerreotype method around the world. 
As early as October 1839, only weeks after Daguerre's demonstration, a Canadian named Pierre-Gustave Joly de Lotbiniere was in Crease, where he made several views of the Acropolis in Athens. And the name of Daguerre almost immediately became a verb, as people reported they were daguerreotyping all over the place. By 1840, major improvements had been made by other daguerreotypers. First, Peter Friedrich Voigtlander of Vienna came up with an improved lens that formed an image 22 times more brilliant than Daguerre's. Second, John Frederick Goddard, a lecturer in optics in London, increased the light sensitivity of the process by taking the silvered plate, which had been fumed with iodide, and repeated the process with bromide, either alone or with chloride. The combination of these two improvements allowed the sitting time for a portrait to be reduced from 4 minutes to 25 seconds. And third, the tones of the daguerreotype were enriched by gilding the plate, an invention of Frenchman Hippolyte Louis Fizeau. After the plate had been bathed to stop the developing process, it was heated by placing it horizontally over a gentle flame, and a solution of gold chloride was flowed over it. This gave the lighter part of the image far more intensity and enhanced the contrast. It wasn't just in England and Europe where the daguerreotype craze was booming. Within weeks, word had reached the eastern shores of the United States, and two men in Philadelphia sat up and took notice. Part 1, Robert Cornelius, 1809-1893. The account of Daguerre's new method of photography was reprinted in the American Daily Advertiser on 16 October, 1839. Among those who read the publication was Joseph Saxton, an attaché of the United States Mint in Philadelphia, which was then located at the intersection of Chestnut and Juniper. When Saxton read this account as published, it seemed so clear and so feasible that he at once decided to try the process according to the directions in the newspaper. Saxton used a cigar box with a convex lens fixed in one end as a camera. Then he took the box from a commonly sold laxative called Seidlitz powder and put some flakes of dry iodine at the bottom. Then he cut a hole in the lid somewhat smaller than the plate he was going to use. For a mercury bath, he mortised a block of hardwood and attached underneath a globular bottom of sheet iron to hold the quicksilver and allow the application of a spirit lamp beneath. When everything was ready, Saxton set his apparatus on the window sill of one of the second-story north windows of the Mint and pointed it northeastwardly toward the sunlit buildings beyond. After the exposure, he followed the instructions in the newspaper to the letter. His co-workers were giving him a hard time about his fool's errand. But to the great surprise of his ridiculers and the joy of the experimenter, he had produced a perfect picture. There, permanently impressed upon the silver plate, was a photograph of the Philadelphia Central High School and the State Arsenal, both across the street on the east side of Juniper, just below Market. Joseph Saxton had just taken the first photograph in the United States. 
The next day, he succeeded in making several other pictures of different buildings, all of which he took from the same window. Now, Saxton knew where to go for the silver plates that he would use. Cornelius in Company at what is now 710 Chestnut Street. Christian Cornelius was a Dutch immigrant who had worked as a silversmith before he became a very successful lamp and chandelier manufacturer. His only son, Robert, was born in Philadelphia on 1 March 1809. Now, silversmiths have been around for many centuries, also dating to before the Christian era. In the 1600s, many European silversmiths began emigrating to America to avoid some of the restrictions placed on them by the guilds, which had been founded in medieval times to help maintain quality, but often at the expense of ingenuity. Silver working was one of the trades that helped inaugurate the technological and industrial history of the United States. Between Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, there were about 400 talented American silversmiths working their trade before 1800, including, of course, Paul Revere. And almost every town in the original 13 colonies had at least one working silversmith. Now, most households at the time bought items made of wood, pewter, or other cheaper materials because they could not afford the more expensive silver, which was a luxury item. Since England only allowed the colonies to import finished pieces, silversmiths faced the challenge of finding unfinished silver to work with. The first major silver ore deposits in the United States were not discovered until 1859 at the Comstock Lode in Virginia City, Nevada. Many silversmiths were forced to order finished pieces from England to sell in America, and they sometimes had to sell items that were unrelated to their trade just to make ends meet. And by the time he was 26, Robert Cornelius was listed in the Philadelphia Business Directory as a brass founder, but he soon joined his father as a silversmith in the lamp business. The company became one of the largest importers of gas lamps in the country and even provided fixtures for the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., as well as other state capitals and public buildings. When Saxton ordered his plates, his excitement about what he was doing apparently rubbed off on the young Cornelius, who got curious. What he did next in late October or early November of 1836, he later described in his own words. Mr. Saxton, who was then connected with the United States Mint, had the opportunity of receiving an early notice in the manner in which Daguerre was operating. He soon produced a picture from the second story of the Mint, a view of chimneys and tops of houses. He was anxious to continue the experiment and called upon me and showed his experiment, explained to me the manner of doing it, and desired me to prepare some plated metal to experiment with. With pleasure, I complied with his request. It was our business to make a great variety of articles of plated metal. But very soon afterwards, I made in the factory a tin box, and I bought from McAllister, 48 Chestnut Street, a lens about two inches in diameter, such as was used for opera purposes. With these instruments, I made the first likeness of myself and another one of some of my children in the open yard of my dwelling, sunlight bright upon us, and I am fully of the impression that I was the first to obtain a likeness of the human face. In other words, Robert Cornelius set up a camera using an opera lens purchased a few doors from his shop 
and went to the back of the family lamp store where he sat very still against a wall for a few minutes and he took the first selfie. His hair is mussed, he's eyeing the camera somewhat warily, but he had just made history. Back to Cornelius in his own words. You will notice the figure is not in the center of the plate. The reason for it is I was alone and ran in front of the camera after preparing it for the picture and could not know until the picture was taken that I was not in the center. It required some minutes with iodine to produce the effect. As early as 6 December 1839, Cornelius was showing his pictures at a meeting of the American Philosophical Society and the Franklin Institute. It was not until a month later that the first French daguerreotype arrived in the United States. Now, by then, Robert Cornelius had shown that it was possible to photograph human beings. Then he decided this might make a good business. He talked with one of his friends, Paul Beck Goddard, a chemist at the University of Pennsylvania. Goddard improved the daguerreotype process by using bromine in addition to iodine to sensitize the plates, which allows the portraits to be made in seconds rather than minutes. Now remember that in London, another chemist named John Frederick Goddard had done almost the same thing at the same time. The two Goddards did not know each other, nor did they know that they were working on the same thing. Paul Beck Goddard, who went on to become an accomplished daguerreotypist, who is remembered today for taking America's earliest existing attempt to photograph a complex interior scene using natural light with human subjects. That was in the winter of 1842-43, when he took a photo of three men in the Academy of Natural Science of Philadelphia's recently constructed building at the corner of Broad and Sansom. The three men in the photo have since been identified as scientist Joseph Leidy, whose statue greets you today as you enter the academy, Dr. Samuel George Morton, who only talked about extensively in podcast 28, Bad Science, and a young Edgar Allan Poe, who is using the academy's collection to study shells, the basis of his early text, a conchologist's first book. Paul Beck Goddard, who later served in the Civil War and died in 1866, is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section G, Lot 58. In May 1840, Robert Cornelius opened one of the first daguerreotype studios in the country on 8th Street above Chestnut. The studio had a southern exposure and a large mirror attached horizontally to one of the windows reflected light into another mirror set at an angle to illuminate the sitter's face. A piece of light purple glass suspended from the ceiling softened the light. Typically, Cornelius's sitters faced the camera directly. Using this system, he could produce an evenly lit bust-length portrait. The sitting time was about a minute. Now, initially, he used no props, but later sittings included a small table as an armrest. Leading Philadelphia businessmen and scientists patronized the Cornelius studio and paid $5 per portrait. Cornelius photographed the Lehigh University scientist Martin Hans Boy several times, including two portraits of him reading a book and images showing Boy conducting scientific experiments. 
Cornelius had mastered the craft of daguerreotyping people. Most early Cornelius daguerreotypes can be identified by their heavy brass frames that were probably made in his family's lamp factory. He developed a metal support for his plates, which was recessed to hold a daguerreotype flat and had a rim to hold the cover glass above the plate. Cornelius's work became known in Europe very quickly. In 1843, in the preface to a treatise in photography being published in England, John Egerton wrote that he, quote, remember seeing about two years ago the most beautiful specimens of the daguerreotype then in existence produced by Mr. Cornelius in Philadelphia. The plates were likely portraits of Philadelphia wig maker Augustus Gallet that were sent to France to show the quality of Gallet's work. Gallet is buried in West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Bryn Mawr Section, Lot 71. Robert Cornelius closed his daguerreotype studio in 1842. He returned to the lamp business. He joined with his brother-in-law Isaac F. Baker to form Cornelius and Baker in 1855. By this time, the company employed more than 500 men and had a showroom on Chestnut and two large factory buildings. By far the largest manufacturer of gas lighting fixtures in the country in 1860, its annual products were valued at $1 million, an enormous sum for that date. Now, During this time, he developed and patented several improvements to gas-burning lamps for households. Cornelius retired in 1877. He turned the business over to his sons, and he moved to a fruit farm near Frankfurt. When Robert Cornelius died on 10 August 1893 at the age of 85, his obituary in the Philadelphia Inquirer was three paragraphs long. It talked about his renown in the gas fixture trade. Nowhere does his obituary mention his historic role in the development of photography in America. He is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section J, Lot 63. A ceramic replica of his first selfie is firmly attached to his tombstone and is a popular stop on the tours given at the cemetery. Part 3, Frederick Gutekunst, 1831-1917. Daguerreotypes quickly became one of the fastest growing businesses and most sought after services in Philadelphia, with high-end galleries opening on Market, Chestnut, and Arch Streets, and second-tier studios on side streets like 4th and 5th. Suddenly, everyone wanted a personal daguerreotype. Even the Quakers had previously eschewed fancy oil paintings for silhouette cutouts. With some exceptions, you could choose your own costume, your own pose, and your own facial expression, and your visage was no longer at risk of being misinterpreted by an artist. The size silver plates for daguerreotypes had become standardized. A whole plate was six and a half by eight and a half inches. That's slightly larger than an iPad mini. A half plate was four and a half by five and a half inches. They went all the way down to a ninth plate of two by two and a half inches, smaller than an average business card. Now, occasionally there was a mammoth or a double whole plate used, but the standard sizes were accepted around the world. 
and it offered you a choice of sizes at different prices. You could also choose from among several available embellishments, say India ink or watercolor or crayon or oil. Now, at a time when skilled laborers, such as a farrier or a bricklayer, made up to a dollar and a quarter a day, you could get your daguerreotype for anything from one to ten dollars, depending on the size and the finishing technique you chose. Thomas Sully was still Philadelphia's premier portrait painter. He would charge you anywhere from eighty to two hundred dollars for a portrait, and you might have to wait months before it was your turn. With a daguerreotype, you left the premises with your new treasure in your hands. If you didn't care that much about quality, some of the lesser shops would even give you a two by two and a half inch ninth plate for 25 cents. The accuracy of detail on a daguerreotype was astounding. In 1840, one commercial photographer presented a finished product to his customer who was deeply dissatisfied with an apparent blemish on the daguerreotype, a black spot on his cheek, which he most certainly did not possess in life. The puzzled photographer had no explanation until he took a magnifying glass to look more closely. He and his customer both had a good laugh when they saw that the imperfection was a housefly which had chosen to land on the customer's face at the ideal time to be captured by the new technology. This may have been the first photobomb in history in 1840. A new era opened in the technology of photography in 1851 with the invention by English sculptor Frederick Scott Archer of a method of sensitizing glass plates with silver salts using collodion, a flammable syrupy solution of nitrocellulose in ether and alcohol. Within a decade, glass plates completely replaced the daguerreotype and reigned supreme in the photographic world until 1880. Now, in the early 1840s, a young Philadelphian named Frederick Gutekunst, son of a German cabinet maker, Frederick Gutekunst Sr., was indentured for six years to Joseph Simon Cohen, prothonotary of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, to prepare him to become a lawyer. Frederick later claimed to be born in Germantown, but current research shows that he was rather born in a German town. By the time he was 18, he was more interested in the art of daguerreotype, and he became a frequent visitor to Marcus Aurelius Root's gallery. Root is interred at Woodland Cemetery. Frederick's father found work for him in the Philadelphia drugstore owned by the Consul for the Kingdom of Württemberg, Frederick Klett, who was also one of the founders of the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, from which Frederick graduated in 1853. He then became an employee of Avery Toby, a druggist, at 1215 Market Street. Here, Frederick started to experiment with chemistry and electricity. In the 1850s, electricity was a science which had not advanced much beyond electroplating, electrotyping, and telegraphy. And daguerreotypes were still regarded somewhat as curiosities. Now, Gutekunst set out to make copper electrotypes from daguerreotypes and succeeded. Electrotyping, also called galvanoplasty, is a chemical method for forming metal parts that exactly reproduce a model. While Frederick was able to develop a means to make more than one copy of a picture from the same exposure, it was not financially very practical. 
Dr. Isaac Norris, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section G, a young man who later became secretary of the Franklin Institute, had been experimenting with daguerreotypy and had heard of young Gutekunst's work. He sought Frederick's help, and he proposed to exchange his camera for the latter's electrical battery. Gutekunst willingly made the bargain. Now, what Mr. Norris did with the electrical apparatus is not known, but Frederick experimented with his camera. He succeeded in getting images of some sort, but they were quite crude. This only whetted his appetite for something better. He needed a better lens, which he knew would cost $5. When he had saved $5, he started from his drugstore to the public ledger office to place an advertisement. But while walking down Market Street, he passed the Ambrotype Gallery of John W. Bear, a man also known as the Buckeye Blacksmith. Ambrotype is a positive photograph on glass made by a variant of the wet plate collodion process. Seeing the proprietor at the door, Frederick asked him about the process of coating a plate for Ambrotypes, and at the same time explained his errand in advertising for a lens. Well, the Buckeye blacksmith replied that he had a lens to sell, and by coincidence, he wanted $5 for it. That's about $60 in 2021 money. With this lens, Mr. Gutekunst began his amateur career as a taker of pictures. His only leisure time when the sun was up was during the noon lunch hour, but as an enthusiastic amateur, he was always ready to sacrifice his meal for the opportunity to take a picture. Shortly thereafter, Gutekunst and a friend were walking to their respective homes at 4th and Branch Streets when they noticed that 706 Arch Street was for rent. He remarked that would be a good place for a gallery, and when he got home, he mentioned the house to his brother Lewis. A few days later, Lewis took the incentive and took a lease on the new studio, so Frederick quit his job with the druggist. They quickly fitted the gallery with the necessary skylight, and in 1856, at age 25, Mr. Frederick Gutekunst began his long career as a professional photographer with his $5 lens and a camera box he had built with the aid of his carpenter father. His studio was an immediate success. Frederick's reputation soon spread. He was a perfectionist. He personally supervised every step of the daguerreotype process. And even when the finished product was satisfactory to the sitter, Gutekunst had to agree that the final product was perfect or he would insist on a new sitting. The product of the gallery was thus kept at a high standard. When the Civil War began in 1861, the Philadelphia studios could barely keep up with the demand. It seemed that every soldier had to have his photograph taken in his uniform, and so did all of his relatives and his close friends. The enlisted men were followed by the officers, and soon the generals arrived. Growth of his business led Gutekunst to initially add the upper floors of number 704 Arch Street to his gallery at 706, but he eventually had to move to larger quarters at 712 Arch Street. The Gutekunst brothers were good businessmen and installed an orchestrion, a device that operated like a music box or player piano, so that his patrons could listen to music in his waiting room. Gutekunst gained his title the Dean of American Photographers 
with his magnificent portrait of U.S. Grant in 1865. In 1904, he explained how it happened. Grant was stopping at the Continental Hotel at the time, and I sent someone over there to invite him to come to the studio for a sitting. In a short time, he strolled in and said he would have come here himself without an invitation, as his brother officers wanted to come to me. When he arrived, I was busy in the operating room with a sitter. And while he waited his turn, Grant sauntered around the reception room, his right hand in his trousers pocket, his left resting in his negligently worn vest. I kept him waiting as little as possible, and when I came out, I found him in the attitude in which he is photographed. General, I said, that is a very nice position. Just keep your hand that way. And I took him under the skylight, and he resumed that attitude, which was so characteristic while I made the photograph. The picture has been considered the best taken of Grant. It's been used for the statue of him in Galena. And General Sherman sent me a letter in which he asserts his belief that it is the most characteristic of the great general. Speaking of General Sherman, he and Hancock and Meade and McClellan and others followed after Grant to get their good Kunst portraits taken also. His next big accomplishment was the panoramic view of the Centennial Exposition in 1876, a 10-foot long by 18-inch high view of the entire grounds from Agricultural Hall to the Observatory on George's Hill. For this, he used albumen paper, which required the whites of 125 dozen eggs to coat it and hold the silver salts. He took the shot from a scaffold erected near the Belmont Reservoir. The work was met with praise from all over the world. In 1878, during a trip to Germany, Frederick purchased the rights for the phototype process, which now allowed him to manufacture thousands of prints every day. Again, requiring more space, he moved north to 813 Girard Avenue. By this time, he had a staff of 40. Gutekunst's photos of American luminaries, Lucretia Mott, Abraham Lincoln, Grover Cleveland, Daniel Webster, Walt Whitman, all cemented his reputation as the premier portrait photographer in America. Frederick Gutekunst was married twice. The first time to Emma Louisa Erskine Gutekunst, 1835-1880. They married in 1858. She bore him three children, only one of whom lived to adulthood. Emma was very much involved with the formation of the Pennsylvania Industrial Home for Blind Women, now the Edith R. Rudolphy Residence for the Blind, located at 3827 Powelton Avenue in Philadelphia. Rudolphy is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section 16. After Emma died in 1880, Frederick married again in 1884 to Sarah Ann Cox, 1852-1907, but they had no additional children. In 1893, Gutekunst opened yet another studio, this one near the Nouveau Riche of Philadelphia at 1700 North Broad Street. He also bought a home nearby at 1842 Bouvier Street. In February 1917, he went home from his studio for lunch and tumbled down the stairs while he was returning to work. This started a cascade of events which led to his death eight weeks later on 27 April 1917. He was 86 years old. 
He was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in a plot with his two wives. On their modest obelisk, Emma, his first wife, gets top billing with her work with the blind. Frederick only has his name plus date of birth and death. His images are still treasured by collectors of photography. Now about the title of this podcast, Smile for the Birdie, I had to talk about it. It goes back to 1879. The July issue of Photographic News contained an article about a man named C.W. Davis who had trained a live canary to sing on his direction to relax a subject who had to remain still in a fixed position for many seconds while the camera took the photo. The article goes on to say that, quote, soon photographers were able to buy a mechanical bird that chirped when a pneumatic bulb was squeezed, and the phrase, watch the birdie, became a command at portrait sessions, end quote. A 1923 patent issued to Oscar Schwarzkopf was labeled as a toy bird songster, hence the phrase, smile for the birdie. Even with the winter weather knocking at the crypt door, there are some live tours in December that you shouldn't miss. On Saturday, 4 December at 1 p.m., volunteer guide Nancy Wright gives you a lesson in Transplanted Souls, another try at eternal rest. The next day on Sunday the 5th at 1 p.m., volunteer guide Rich Boardman takes you on a tour of those who had surprise endings called They Never Saw It Coming. On Saturday, December 11th at 1 p.m., volunteer guide Rich Wilhelm gives the monthly Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour at Laurel Hill that sort of serves as an introduction to newcomers. And on Saturday, December 18th at 1 p.m., there is an introductory tour to the residents of West Laurel Hill Cemetery called Sacred Spaces and Storied Places. If you can't join us in person, look for the next episode of All Bones Considered in late December. And if you're still looking for a last-minute holiday gift that will be remembered, get your friends and loved ones a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Young friends aged 21 to 40 can become members for just $25. And an individual membership for people over 40 is $50. You will get invitations to members-only programs, $5 off all public programs, and that includes all the tours, a members-only special edition podcast of All Bones Considered, and 10% discount on gift shop merchandise, whether you shop in person or online. Go to thelaurelhillcemetery.org.support slash membership to sign yourself up or give a special gift to a friend or a loved one. Become a member of Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Part 3, Matthew Carey Lee, 1823-1897. As you've heard, silver compounds are necessary for the success of photography. Silver chloride had been discovered in 1565 by George Fabricius in the mines of Bohemia as the mineral horn silver, or luna cornua. By the 17th century, it was known to darken in sunlight. 
1614, Angela Sala observed the same behavior in silver nitrate when in contact with organic matter. This was the lapis lunaris of the alchemists. Johann Heydrich Schultz was the first to demonstrate a primitive photographic effect in silver salts in 1725, and Carl Wilhelm Scheele showed in 1777 that the violet rays of the spectrum were most effective in decomposing silver chloride, and that the dark product was finely divided silver. Knowledge of the light sensitivity of the other halides had to weak the discovery of the parent halogens, iodine in 1811 by Bernard Courtois and bromine in 1826 by Antoine Ballard. One of the experts in this new science of photochemistry was Philadelphia native Matthew 1T Carey Lee, L-E-A. You heard about his younger brother, Henry Charles Lee, in All Bones Considered podcast number 18, The Calder Connection. As a reminder, though, their father, Isaac Lee, was a distinguished naturalist, a member of the American Philosophical Society, and a publisher. In 1821, Isaac had married Frances Ann Carey, a botanist, as well as the daughter of Matthew 1T Carey, the Philadelphia publisher whose business he ultimately took over with his brother-in-law. The publishing firm Lee and Febiger is now part of the publishing conglomerate of Lippincott, Williams, and Wilkins, one of the largest publishers of medical journals in the world. Matthew Carey Lee was the second child to receive that name. The first had died in infancy. As was common in those days, the favored name was reused. But its second recipient went by Carey, so as not to be confused with his grandfather. Carey and Henry were both brothers and best friends. They received no formal education, but they had superb home tutors. Henry, you'll remember, went on to be one of the finest historians of his time, specializing in the Spanish Inquisition and witchcraft, in addition to maintaining the family publishing business. They had a younger sister, Frances, who dedicated much of her life to caring for their ill mother. In 1832, at the age of nine years, Carey spent six months in Europe with his parents, where he was brought into contact with eminent men of science, both in England and on the continent, many of whom had long been friends of his father. Now, the Lay brothers received excellent tutoring in both the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, as well as classical languages and history. Now, Carey took a brief side trip into law. He studied under William M. Meredith and was admitted to the Philadelphia Bar in 1847. But his health was considered too fragile to practice. In fact, one of his biographers actually labeled him an invalid. He retreated to study chemistry, initially at the consulting laboratory of Professor James C. Booth, the first professor of chemistry at the University of Pennsylvania. His earliest scientific paper was entitled On the First or Southern Coal Field of Pennsylvania. It appeared when he was 18 in 1841 in the American Journal of Science and Arts. Lee had found his calling with chemistry. He set up a private laboratory at his home at 1880 Cheltenham Avenue near Chestnut Hill. Initially, he studied photochemistry. 
Carey began experimenting with the chemical properties of developer in 1864, especially the function of silver in the developing process. In the same year, he assumed the position of American correspondent to the British Journal of Photography, and he became a steady contributor to the Philadelphia Photographer and Photographic Mosaics, an annual record of photographic process. In 1865, he made the first mordant dye picture. A mordant or a dye fixative is a substance used to set or bind dyes on a surface by forming a coordination complex with the dye, which then attaches to the surface. It's also used in dyeing fabrics and for intensifying stains in cell or tissue preparations. From 1865 through 1866, Carey published 140 papers for the British Journal of Photography. He covered optics, laboratory techniques, legal matters, practical hints, and a few anecdotes thrown in. He was not a social person. His weak health made him reluctant to travel and meet with other scientists, even locally. And an early accident in his lab with picric acid had damaged one of his eyes and eventually had to be removed. He worked quietly and independently in his lab, and he kept meticulous notes. Because of his classical education, he was thoroughly familiar with the results of others, and he read the scientific literature published in English, French, and German. Carey's research for the next two decades was in photographic chemistry. He published more than 300 papers in various photography magazines, and in 1868 he published his classic, A Manual of Photography, intended as a textbook for beginners and a book of reference for advanced photographers. It is an all-encompassing work of 356 pages. It begins with the selection of the lens, goes through making the negative and positive images, using perspective, portraiture, darkroom tips, microphotography. It even includes a chapter on photography safety. It is not that photography is necessarily a hurtful art but its practice brings its votaries into contact with several very strong poisons, which, if used without great care, and still more if used with the heedlessness that is only too common, are liable to produce the very worst effects. These substances are principally ether, collodion, cyanide of potassium, corrosive sublimate, chloride of gold, nitric acid, acetic acid, and ammonia. Ether has a powerfully depressing effect upon the nervous system and is used for that purpose in medicine. Speaking from personal experience and having witnessed evil results in others, the writer earnestly desires to induce the habitual adoption of effective precautions. In 1886, Lee found that the reduction of silver citrate by ferrous citrate provided several new forms of silver in a reproducible state. Depending on the proportions of the reactants and the method of purification, he found three forms of allotropic silver. A. Soluble, B. Insoluble, derived from A, and C. Gold-colored. 
allotropes are different structural modifications of an element, not a new compound. The atoms of the element are bonded together in a different manner. For example, the allotropes of carbon include diamond. The carbon atoms are bonded together in a tetrahedral lattice arrangement. Graphite, the carbon atoms are bonded together in sheets of a hexagonal lattice. Graphene, single sheets of graphite. And fullerenes, the carbon atoms are bonded together in spherical, tubular, or ellipsoidal formations. Allotropic silver interested Lay because of its light sensitivity. His last paper on photochemistry was in 1889. By this time, dry plates and films were being produced on an industrial scale, and there was a massive photographic industry, which essentially made independent researchers like Lay redundant and obsolete. But it was in 1889 that he published an article in the American Journal of Science called The Properties of Allotropic Silver. In it, he described a curious occurrence. I brought with me to my summer home a number of specimens in tubes. On opening the box, no tubes of gold-colored silver were to be found. All had changed to white. But the same box contained pieces of paper and of glass upon which the same material had been extended. These were wholly unchanged and had preserved the gold color perfectly. Apparently, the explanation was this. The mere vibration caused by the jarring of a journey of 600 miles by rail and steamboat had no effect in changing the molecular form, but the material contained in the partly filled tubes had also been subject to friction of pieces moved over each other, and this had caused the change. To confirm this suspicion. He sent a tube partly filled with gold-colored silver but rendered motionless by being tightly packed with cotton wool on a 2,400-mile train trip. The sample arrived back unaltered, while control samples that were left loose in partially filled tubes had turned white. Matthew Carey Lay had just performed the first controlled experiment involving mechanochemistry. He had changed one allotrope of silver into another without using heat or light, but simply by movement. Now, mechanochemical phenomena have been utilized since time immemorial. For example, making a fire. The oldest method of making fire is to rub pieces of wood against each other, creating friction and heat. This allows the wood to undergo combustion at a high temperature. A cigarette lighter uses a similar method. It uses flint and steel. A spark, a small particle of pyrophoric metal, spontaneously combusts and when combined with an accelerant such as butane, causes a flame. In 1892, Lee proved conclusively that any form of energy, including mechanical, was indeed capable of disrupting silver halide molecules. He published in the American Journal of Science an article entitled Disruption of the Silver Haloid Molecule by Mechanical Force. It was groundbreaking. It opened a whole new line of investigations of chemical properties. Carey was about 70 years old at this time. Only in retrospect has the importance of this work emerged. 
Carrie Lee not only showed that mechanical action could induce chemical changes, even endothermic ones that gave off no heat, but he also proved that these changes were sometimes different from those produced by heat. Mechanochemistry is an interface between chemistry and mechanical engineering. It is possible to synthesize chemical products by using only mechanical action. This is radically different from the traditional way of dissolving, heating, and stirring chemicals in a solution. Because it eliminates the need for many solvents, mechanochemistry could help make many chemical processes used by industry much more environmentally friendly. In 1852, Matthew Carey Lee had married his cousin, Elizabeth Lee Jowden, a sister of his brother's wife. Together they had one child, George Henry Lee. When she died in 1881, he married Eva Lovering, the daughter of Joseph Lovering, Hollis Professor of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy at Harvard. Now, for someone so active and eminent in science, he belonged to few scientific institutions. He was not associated with any university department. As a member of the Franklin Institute from 1846, he used its library collection extensively, but he never participated in the work of the Institute. And whenever he had a new paper to present, someone read it for him. It was not until 1895 that he was elected a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He was 72 years old. Matthew Carey Lay died at 74 on 15 March 1897. Complications related to a prostate operation. He was interred in the Lay family plot, section S, lot 49. His brother, Henry Charles Lee has a larger-than-life statue of Cleo, the goddess of history, overlooking his portion of the property. It was sculpted by no less than Alexander Sterling Calder. But the Latin motto, Veritatum Delexe, applies to both brothers. If your Latin is a little rusty, I understand. It translates as, I delight in the truth. As he had asked in his will, his notebooks were all destroyed seriously limiting the information available about his work. His scientific books and apparatus were donated to the Franklin Institute along with a substantial fund in perpetuity for the purchase of books and journals. Part 4 Coleman Sellers II, 1827-1907. The term Renaissance man did not come into use until the early part of the 20th century. Leonardo da Vinci has often been described as the archetype of the Renaissance man, a man of, quote, unquenchable curiosity and feverishly inventive imagination. The term is now used to refer to great thinkers living before, during, or after the Renaissance. In the United States, for example, the classic Renaissance man may have been Thomas Jefferson, planter, lawyer, politician. He mastered disciplines from surveying, mathematics, horticulture, mechanics. He was also an architect. He was a philosopher. He knew several languages, and he invented many small practical devices, including the swivel chair, which you will hear mine squeak occasionally when I move around. 
The term jack-of-all-trades dates to Shakespeare's time, but you won't find it in the works of the Bard. Rather, Robert Greene used it in his 1592 booklet, Greene's Groatsworth of Wit, to dismissively refer to the actor-turned-playwright William Shakespeare. The master of none tale was added at some time later, with an implication that the person being referenced wasn't an expert at anything, but merely an assimilator of various disciplines. The general term to describe such people is polymath, from Greek, having learned much. The first time this word was published in Western Europe was in 1603. Johann von Wovern, a Hamburg philosopher, defined polymathy as knowledge of various matters drawn from all kinds of studies, ranging freely through all the fields of the disciplines as far as the human mind with unwearied industry is able to pursue them. In the days before distractions like Netflix and YouTube and TikTok, there were far more polymaths than we find now. Coleman Sellers II was such a man. If you are a regular listener to All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, you've already heard his name twice, but that was in reference to his father. In podcast number 22, The Birds and the Bees, I mentioned Coleman Sellers as the husband of ornithologist and painter Sophonisba Angasola Peel. That means that Coleman II was the grandson of another polymath, Charles Wilson Peel. And in podcast number 28, Bad Science, I mentioned that Coleman I was the man who in 1813 exposed the flim-flammery of the perpetual motion huckster, Charles Redheffer. Coleman Sellers II was born in 1827 in Upper Darby. For at least five generations before him, his ancestors were noted men of mechanical aptitude. He attended private schools in Philadelphia until 1838, when at age 11, he entered the academy of French scholar Jean-Claude Antoine Brunin de Bolmar, better known as Anthony Bolmar, at Westchester, Pennsylvania. There his interest in natural philosophy was first stimulated. Natural philosophy, you've heard me use the term earlier in the podcast. This was the precursor to natural science. It was a philosophical study of nature and the physical universe that was dominant before the development of modern science. Major branches of natural philosophy included astronomy and cosmology, the study of nature on the grand scale, etiology, the study of causes, the study of chance, probability, and randomness, the study of elements, the study of the infinite and the unlimited, the study of matter, mechanics, the study of translation of motion and change, the study of nature or the various sources of actions, the study of natural qualities, the study of physical quantities, the study of relations between physical entities, and the philosophy of space and time. Many of these are precursors to what we now think of as biology, chemistry, physics, astrophysics, engineering, philosophy, and other modern disciplines. Now, Sellers rapidly assimilated all that could be taught in natural philosophy, and he sought out an education in areas that it did not traditionally cover, such as botany and mineralogy. When he finished his course at Bolmar's Academy, he was 17 years old. His mother wanted him to become a farmer. 
so he devoted the next two years to practical agriculture. But even on the farm, his mechanical bent asserted itself, and he invented many devices, including a metal-toothed hay rake that was mounted on wheels. In 1846, the age of 19, his older brothers Charles and George Escall Sellers offered Coleman a job in the Globe Rolling Mill in Cincinnati, Ohio. In metalwork, rolling is a metal-forming process in which metal stock is passed through one or more pairs of rolls to reduce the thickness or to make the thickness uniform. He learned all the processes to making merchant iron, wire rods, and the flat rails used at that time on the railroads of the West. Merchant iron, or bar mills, produce a variety of shaped products such as angles, channels, beams, rounds, and hexagons. There was also an extensive wire mill connected with the establishment. It made wire for Henry O'Reilly, who was then called the Telegraph King of the West. He had, in 1845, secured a contract to string telegraph wires from New York to the Great Lakes. From O'Reilly, Sellers procured a few cells of the batteries he was using on the telegraph outfits, and he filled his spare time by repeating the experiments that had been announced by another polymath, Michael Faraday. Having access to a mill, Sellers made all the apparatus that was required for these electrical experiments himself. Before he reached the age of 21, Sellers was superintendent and manager of the Globe Rolling Mills, and during 1850 and 51, he was hired by his older brother to build locomotives for use on the Panama Railroad. After completing these engines late in 1851, he became foreman of the Niles Brothers locomotive work in Cincinnati. He stayed there for five years. Now, in 1856, he returned to Philadelphia to work with his cousin at William Sellers and Company at 16th and Hamilton. It's now the site of Philadelphia Community College. He oversaw their drafting room. He retained this position for more than 30 years, during which time he designed a great variety of machinery, including hydraulics, cranes, hoists, elevators, presses and forging machines, engines, pumps and injectors, turntables, pivot bridges, and much else. In 1892, he built one of the largest lathes ever made to turn and bore barrels for the Navy's 16-inch guns. Now, in 1858, it occurred to Sellers that the new art of photography might be applied to illustrate machinery for advertising. He hired portrait photographers to make the necessary negatives. He was not happy with the results. He said, I can probably do better than that. So he took lessons from a traveling photographer, and he developed his skills. He built a photographic darkroom as an adjunct to the drafting office. He devised special cameras, and apprentices took turns in printing, developing, and mounting his photographs. His work was successful, so he decided to try portrait and landscape work in his hours of relaxation. And for the rest of his life, this proved his most absorbing hobby. His creative mind kept coming up with new inventions. He patented a cheap and effective rolling press for mounting prints, and he made variable portable dark chambers or tents for field work with the wet process. At that time, one of the difficulties of field work was washing the negatives after they were developed and before they were fixed. 
Carrying fresh water added a considerable weight to the apparatus. Sellers discovered that washing could be deferred to a more convenient time if the plate was coated with a mixture of glycerin and water and then shut up in a light tight box. This enabled him to preserve unfixed plates for months before he processed them. This greatly simplified the practice of field photography by the wet process. In 1861 and 62, like Matthew Carey Lee, he was an American correspondent for the British Journal of Photography. For many years, he was also a frequent contributor to American photographic publications. He was one of the founders of the Philadelphia Photographic Society and a prominent member of the Amateur Exchange Club. Early in life, he had amused himself and others with feats of sleight of hand, in which he was quite as expert as many professional magicians. During the Civil War, he used this talent to give performances at the hospitals for the amusement of the wounded soldiers or for the benefit of the Sanitary Commission, in which he was actively involved. So yes, he was also a professional magician. His greatest accomplishment came in 1861. Men had been experimenting with the concept of animation for many years. People from all over the world enjoyed shows with moving figures that were created and manipulated manually in puppetry, automata, shadow play, the magic lantern. In 1833, the stroboscopic disc, better known as the phenakistocope, introduced the principle of modern animation with sequential images that were shown one by one in quick succession to form an optical illusion of motion. The stroboscopic animation principle was also applied in the zoetrope, the flip book, and the praxinoscope. The average 19th century animation contained about 12 hand-drawn images that were displayed as a continuous loop by spinning a device manually. A flip book often contained more than 12 pictures and it had a beginning and an end, but its animation would not last longer than a few seconds either. And none of them were based on photography. Now, in the 1850s, some attempts were made in Europe to make animation out of stills, but they were not very successful. It was in 1861 that Coleman Sellers came up with a new idea. He understood that with wet plates and an ordinary camera, the only way to photograph a figure in motion was to stop the motion. After one shot had been taken and another wet plate put in the camera, the figure had to move into a new position for a new photograph. Sellers slowly and painstakingly took a series of posed stills. His wife sewing, one of his sons rocking in a chair, another son hammering a nail. He then pasted these prints on a kind of paddle wheel device inside a box with a viewing scope. Each picture moved quickly toward the eye, was held for a moment by a spring, and then snapped away. When looking through the scope, the viewer could see human motion. The principle was a little like that of the riffle book, whose bent back leaves, when released by the thumb, showed a rapid succession of pictures that gave the impression of movement. He called his paddle wheel, which was a crude prototype of a film projector, the kinematoscope or the moving view. Sellers thus for the first time used the Greek root kinema that we find today in words like cinema, cinematography, and cinemascope. 
Now keep in mind, this was done in 1861, the first year of the Civil War. This was 11 years before the pioneering multi-camera work of Edward James Moobridge, formerly his name was Edward James Muggeridge, and 26 years before the groundbreaking work of Thomas Edison. Sellers' work is now recognized by film historians as the first step in a long, laborious process to create motion pictures as we know them today. About 1873, he delivered three lectures on photography at the Franklin Institute. In one of them, he took a photograph by artificial light and then developed the negative in the field of a projecting lantern, thus allowing the audience to follow the entire process, including fixing and washing on the screen. He also took up microphotography, and he developed a method by which he could project microscopic slides onto a projecting screen as a teaching tool. Now, interestingly, for a man of science, he vehemently opposed the metric system. He wrote an oft-quoted article called, The Metric System, Is It Wise to Introduce It Into Our Machine Shops? in 1880. His involvement with the Franklin Institute was legendary. He served as vice president for several years, and then he was elected president for five successive terms. In 1884, the respect for his knowledge and integrity was further improved when he was asked to join the Sabert Commission. The University of Pennsylvania had received a bequest from the late Henry Sabert to investigate the phenomena of modern spiritualism. This research continued for three years, during which time Dr. Sellers' special training was of great value to his fellow commissioners in devising tests and suggesting methods of investigation and observation. Many names familiar to Laurel Hill Cemetery visitors, Dr. William Pepper, Dr. Horace Howard Furness, also served on this committee. I will do a podcast on the Sabert Commission sometime in the future. Coleman's common sense and thorough knowledge of natural laws had always caused him to challenge those who claimed occult powers. He was very good at detecting the impostures of charlatans. While his mind was always open to the reception of new truths, he never resorted to hypothetical new forces to explain alleged phenomena until he had exhausted the possibilities of those forces of nature already recognized. Now, much of what I just told you was about Sellers' hobby of photography. Because of his multiple talents and his reputation, Coleman Sellers II was still one of the most sought-after mechanical engineers in the country. Probably his greatest work in this capacity was in connection with the hydroelectric power development of Niagara Falls in 1892. Sellers was a consulting engineer of the Cataract Construction Company, a corporation formed to execute the Niagara Falls project, and he served on the International Niagara Commission, which determined the types of turbines and generators and the methods of power transmissions finally adopted. Sellers designed the first large dynamos installed in the Niagara Falls power plant. On 8 October 1851, Sellers married Cornelia Wells. They had four children, Coleman Jr., Jesse, Horace Wells, and Harold. Jesse married Sabin Colton, a prominent investor in Philadelphia and New York, who later wrote a brief history of the family. Coleman was 80 years old when he died in 1907. He was buried under a simple stone in the Lansdowne section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery.
Next month in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories for January 2022. It's Tennis Anyone? Frederick Winslow Taylor is remembered today mostly for his work on industrial efficiency and scientific management. But he was also a golfer at the 1900 Olympiad in Paris, where he finished fourth. With his brother-in-law and tennis partner, Clarence Clark, he won the inaugural United States National Tennis Doubles Championship at Newport in 1881. Clarence Clark went on to be elected to the Tennis Hall of Fame in 1983. Howard Head was an aeronautical engineer who was credited with the invention of the first commercially successful aluminum laminate skis and the oversized tennis racket. And William Clothier, son of merchant Isaac Clothier, is also in the Tennis Hall of Fame. While William Clothier Jr. went through his tennis career secretly doubling as a spy for the CIA. We will hear the stories of these five men in the January 2022 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakidwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pincoid Pedestrian Bridge, watch out for the bicyclists, and come out Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are now open from 7 a.m. until 5 p.m. And we will keep those hours through March when once again we expand to 7 p.m. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines when you join us. And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. And here is more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog where you could read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tour 1 and 2 both give you an overview. At All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside-the-mausoleum visits. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. 
I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years and read you some news stories while also playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around to hear the references that I used for this podcast. There are a ton of them. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. All right, I hope you refilled your drink. This is going to take a few minutes. The bibliography for this is the longest bibliography, the most references I've used for any podcast so far. The one essential that even if you only have a peripheral interest in 19th century photography in Philadelphia is the book that is called 19th Century Photography in Philadelphia. Subtitle is 250 Historic Prints from the Library Company of Philadelphia. It's by Kenneth Finkel, Dover Publications, New York, 1980. But I found a copy on eBay for less than $10. It is out there. You can find it. 19th century photography in Philadelphia. Now, some articles. The oldest sun picture of the human continents. Persistent efforts to detract from the honor do Philadelphia scientists. That is by Julian F. Sachse, an American journalist. Of Photography, Philadelphia, Volume 15, Number 169, January 1894, pages 33 to 38. There is a website dedicated to daguerreotypes and has several of these references. You can find that reference there. Also, Philadelphia's Share in the Development of Photography by Julius Sachse, Journal of the Franklin Institute of the State of Pennsylvania for the Promotion of the Mechanical Arts, Volume 135, Number 4, April 1893, pages 271 to 287. And Philadelphia's share in American photography, author not identified, in Wilson's Photographic Magazine, New York, volume 40, number 558, June 1903, pages 287 to 288. The image of Edgar Allan Poe, a daguerreotype linked to the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia by Benjamin J. McFarlane and Thomas Peter Bennett. That's from the Proceedings of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, volume 147, 1997, pages 1 through 32. Encyclopedia of 19th Century Photography, edited by John Hanavy. Routledge, Taylor, and Francis Group, London, 2008. They carry their religion into every act of their public and private lives. Quaker consumption of early photographic images in Philadelphia, 1839 to 1860. That's by Anne Verplank. Early American Studies, Volume 13, Number 1, Winter 2015, pages 237 to 278.
The Tintype in America, 1856 to 1880 by Janice G. Schimmelman. That's from the Transactions of the American Philosophical Society of Philadelphia, Volume 97, Part 2, 2007. Now, for Robert Cornelius, add the Zinc Statuettes of Cornelius and Baker by Carol Grissom, Winterthur Portfolio, Volume 46, Number 1, Spring 2012, pages 25 to 62. For Frederick Gutekunst, add Frederick Gutekunst, Author Unknown. It's from the American Art News, Volume 15, Number 30, May 5th, 1917, page 4. For Matthew Carey Lee, add Biographical Memoir of Matthew Carey Lee, 1823-1897, by George F. Barker. This was read before the National Academy of Sciences on 21 April 1903. M. Carey Lee, The Father of Mechanochemistry, by Laszlo Takax. It's from the Bulletin of the History of Chemistry, Volume 28, Number 1, 2003, pages 26 to 34. For Coleman Sellers, add Perspective on 3D by Richard C. Hawkins, The Quarterly of Film, Radio, and Television, Volume 7, Number 4, Summer 1953, pages 325 to 334. The Coming of Camera and Projector, Part 1, by Kenneth McGowan. The Quarterly of Film, Radio, and Television, Volume 9, Number 1, Autumn 1954, pages 1 through 14. The First Niagara Falls Power Project, by Harold I. Charlin. The Business History Review, Volume 35, Number 1, Spring 1961, pages 59 to 74. And finally... Invisible Technology, Invisible Number, by Graham Hollister Short. Icon, Volume 1, 1995, pages 132 to 147. Stay safe, stay well. I'll talk to you next month.